Welcome, everyone, to the AI in Business podcast. I'm Matthew DeMello, Senior Editor here at Emerge Technology Research. Today's guests on the program are Melissa Easy, Vice President and General Manager of Clinical Technologies at IQVIA, and Tim Riley, Vice President of Clinical Data Analytics, also at IQVIA. They both return to today's program to talk about the current state of AI in life sciences and clinical trials in greater depth. Throughout today's episode, Melissa and Tim underscore both the ongoing and impending impact of large language models on report writing and other clinical trials-oriented use cases. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Melissa and Tim, thank you so much for being with us again on the program. We are very excited to be back. (laughs) Yes, very excited. Looking forward to it. Yes, it's been so long, as they say. In terms of, we, we spent a lot of the last episode bridging the gap for our audience in terms of the developments we've seen right alongside banking, in terms of thinking of how patients receive life sciences, healthcare services as an experience. A lot of the way financial services thinks of customer journeys, customer experiences. This is now a a bridge that's being thoroughly crossed in this industry. Just in terms of prioritizing that patient experience, what makes data management different as a discipline in the healthcare, especially for the life sciences space where you guys are, just in terms of challenges in developing a tool like you guys have for IQVIA's clinical data analytics suite. Tim, we'll start with you. I think the first thing to recognize is that data collection in a clinical trial is fundamentally different than data collections in almost any other industry, right? And what I mean by that is for a clinical trial, the primary purpose of the clinical trial is data collection, right? This is in contrast to every other industry, right? If you look at a grocery store, for example, you know, the primary reason the grocery store exists is selling food or selling produce or or others to their customers. I go and I buy a loaf of bread. The grocery store wanted to sell me that bread. I wanted to buy it. That was the primary purpose. Now, a lot of data is generated as a byproduct. You know, the exhaust of that transaction is data. Information about what else I bought, the market basket of interest, how often I go to that particular place, all really interesting stuff. But it's a secondary use of the data. The primary purpose was I wanted to acquire a loaf of bread and pay for it, right? Contrast that with clinical research where the reason the clinical trial exists is data collection, right? We're collecting the data to then evaluate at the end of the study whether or not the the treatment is both safe and effective. It's a fundamental difference that then requires you to have different tools and technologies to then manage it. You have to ensure, you know, if, if you are not collecting the the right data at the right time as part of the clinical study, then the the whole purpose of the activity could be undermined. You may end up having patients go through significant burden to go to investigators an investigator site frequently to collect data and at the end of it not have a, a valid result to prove if a if a, a treatment is safe and effective. So What tools like the clinical data analytics suite do is it manages the data as part of the clinical study and Mm -hmm. provides the tool necessary for 
team members to do those special things required in clinical research to make sure the data is collected accurately, completely, and in a repeatable way. The other thing we need to think about as it comes to the patient experience is how do you collect the data in a way that minimizes that patient burden, which I think we spoke about on the last, our last discussion. Yep. You know, can you collect it remotely? Can you collect it via sensors at home instead of at the doctor's office requiring needles, for example? What are the ways you can collect that data in a way that, that streamlines that for the patient, I think are some of the key items. And then ultimately just making sure you do it right so that the, the sacrifice that the patient is making to participate mm -hmm. in the clinical research results in something beneficial for them as well as the general population. I'll just pull on the thread that Tim actually just raised around, I mean, the question was more around patient experience and how we can improve it. So many, many years ago now, I was in a clinical trial and I, to this day, have no idea if I was on active treatment or placebo or what the outcomes of that study actually showed. And I think that in today's day and age, that's no longer acceptable. We have ways right. where we can, you know, distribute data in ways that, that meet with, you know, privacy and, and whatnot to actually help patients understand what they have contributed to. And, and I think that it, it's through all of the sort of data and analytics that we have the ability to do that now. And I think that is really important because if we want people to actually participate in clinical research. We want them to recommend that their mom or their dad or their child might, you know, there has to be something in it for them other than perhaps access to, you know, a certain drug that they might not, might not be on the market yet. But I think mm -hmm. we, we owe it to people to give them that data and show them the difference they made by participating. Absolutely. And it's much clearer to see just where that, that rubber hits the road right to the patient and where you're going to see, you know, a lot of a lot of these differences take place. I think a, an undercurring theme of, of both episodes, I know we're only halfway recording the second one, but the reoccurring theme I'm really noticing is that above all expectations are changing with the technology. And that goes for regulations, that goes for patients, that goes for the institutions themselves, that goes for the firms that are, that are making these products. And I think above all, that's what really changes conversations like what we were saying in the last episode about diversity and inclusion, or even even just larger conversations we're having about, you know, patient privacy and patient experience writ large. I want to turn, Melissa, to a, a technology that you mentioned also in the last episode with chat GPT. I know that there's going to be a back end and a front end change to this too. So we'll, we'll start with the back end and, and Tim here for this, but how might AI tools like chat GPT, large language models, generative AI help to streamline clinical trials? I know we touched a little bit about this in the last episode, but just vis-a-vis -vis your last answer in terms of minimalizing that burden on the patient, what, what difference might large language models do to help these processes and what might they look like in about two to five years time? So one thing to keep in mind is that a cornerstone of clinical research is that the results are replicated and repeatable. 
So when you look at it that way, you need to be very conscious of AI algorithms and whether they're deterministic and pro or probabilistic, and, and also whether or not they will consistently produce the same answer every time, right? If an algorithm is more probabilistic, hard to explain, and the experts in the field may not be able to truly appreciate the recommendation, it may have less, less ability to influence the clinical study, influence the patient experience. Tools like ChatGPT, I think, from a kind of direct involvement in patient experience, may be limited, honestly, in the next two to five years because of, the, of those sorts of requirements, because you may not always get the same answer. The answer may be dependent upon the context, for example. And so to, to actually truly influence a patient experience, I think there will be an impact, but it'll, it will more be of a, an accelerator for communication versus a kind of a, an automation of communication. You know, I think human in the loop type interfaces that may just make it easier for, you know, dialogue to occur, but, but certainly not automatically for that to occur. Yes. And, and just with all the conversations we're having about AI and the responsibility to have humans and workflows, no matter what, at least for the foreseeable future, just from a responsibility yeah. standpoint, I, I think really sticks out in your last answer. But I want to turn to Melissa where the rubber hits the road here, because I, I, I think I, I think it'll be more direct just in terms of everything that Tim said about LLMs, ChatGPT being a communications accelerator rather than an automator. We may see that sooner rather than later, no? I do think there are places where we will be able to use the technology to speed things up. So medical writing, there's all sorts of sort of use cases where you, I can see how we can use it, generate it, and then a human comes in and finishes it. But but one place when we when we continue to focus on patients that I think this is a really interesting area to explore is how patients work out about a clinical trial in the first place. Two weekends ago, I, I had someone sort of in, in the area I live in hunt me down going, oh my gosh, I believe you work in clinical trials. Like, can you help me? You know, and, and it was a friend of theirs had recently been diagnosed with a particular type of cancer. And because there's no treatment on the market, they were trying to work out how to get in clinical trials. And I think like for, for myself and people that work in clinical trials, we think we've worked really hard to be very patient friendly, to help people understand about clinical trials, how to get in a clinical trial. You know, we think it's really obvious. But when a person is faced with this terrifying news, you know, and, and they don't know where to go, I do think that technology can actually help in this way. And so, so this is where I think that particular use cases, because it will be pointing them towards somewhere where they can be screened to see, do they really meet the criteria here? Is this correct? I mean, it's a terrifying time. And so I think any way we can make things feel like, make them feel more supportive, supported mm. throughout their journey, I think is really important because again, we can't forget what they're going through. I, I mean, honestly, the response back to this person, you would have thought that I had dedicated, you know, days and days and hours of work to them. I literally just knowing what I know, Googled the type of cancer they had and went back and mm -hmm. said, well, here's the first three links that if this was someone in my family, these are the first three places I'd be going, you know, happy to help more. And again, so appreciative. So I do think that there is op small opportunities for things like that when it comes to dealing with patients and, and technology in the shorter term. 
One quick question, one quick follow-up that we can cut if it's not a thing, but I'm I'm very intrigued to know that you know, we were talking about changing expectations. You you get a call from a friend that, that wants to participate in a, in a clinical trial. I know that's purely anecdotal, but I wonder that if a byproduct of these technologies in a few years might be that clinical trials are seen as alternative treatment, maybe even more so than they are now. Is, is that at all a trend? Is, the, is, is, is yeah. that all something? It is wow. a thing. Clinical trial is a treatment. I think each, each person, because in this industry, we love different acronyms and names for the same thing. Of course. We love to make it confusing. And so there's, this is a thing. Clinical trial is a care option. So it is a thing that people people truly do follow and appreciate when when they fall into that right category. Absolutely. And I want to ask before we run out of time, and I know we're, we're running short, what other particular use cases fit into this category that are showing a lot of promise here? So actually, we've we've got a hackathon happening at the moment where we are exploring all of these options and then going to decide which ones we want to pursue first. Because again, I think that like there, there are potentially endless opportunities. Again, needs to be backed up and bumped into sort of all of the regulatory guidelines we have in clinical trials around, you know, AI and technology. And and so I, I actually think this is a really interesting space to watch right now. And I think this is very different to conversations that we had a couple of years ago where everyone was talking about blockchain. For me, for me, it wasn't it 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 didn't fit. I didn't see it happening. Whereas this, this is very different to me, the trend we're seeing right now. And I really do believe we are going to see the impact. But like Tim was talking about, for certain activities in a clinical trial, it's not going to be happening for, you know, I think four years plus. For other things, it's going to be really fast and it's a race. Who can get there first? Absolutely. I I almost wanted to put that as a frame to the problems question of our first episode and that we are really seeing a bottleneck. There's almost especially as we come out of pandemic that we've seen a lot of change really fast. If the whole industry was a lung, it just needs time to breathe for a second. Not to make too many hokey healthcare and life sciences metaphors for everybody, but it just if it was an organ or a lung, it would just need to breathe for a second. And then we're going to start to see some really exciting things happen on the adoption. And thank you so much, everybody, for being on the program this week and last. We really, really appreciate it. No, it was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. I think what Tim and Melissa brought to today's episode, just in terms of the crux between two emerging trends, both large language models and everything we're seeing in clinical trials is really instrumental, especially when you see folks like Larry Summers get on 60 Minutes and start talking about how LLMs are going to replace doctors. And there's a lot to unpack there, Larry, but that's not really the case. And I think listeners have heard me elsewhere on the podcast. I think even on our FinServe program talk about this take. And it's it's just given this first phase where we're seeing a lot of these technologies be ironed out by subject matter experts. I just think it's it's too soon to be talking about complete autonomization of healthcare and life sciences workflows. There's just too many ethics involved. There's too much focus involved. There's too many humans already involved. 
that will always need, I think, at least for the foreseeable future, some sort of human involvement just to make sure we're not having robots in artificial intelligence completely okay a, say, a surgery process without so much as a black box explanation. On behalf of Daniel and everyone here at Emerge, thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll catch you next time on the AI in Business podcast.